Hi, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is uh, Larry O'Hara. He's a researcher. We talked last year on November 14th, 2019, about a variety of subjects, primarily the Julian Assange rape allegations, but we also talked a lot about different parapolitical subjects, and that interview is available on my YouTube channel or my podcast, William Ramsey Investigates. But on tonight's show, the, the core... Uh, subject that we're going to be discussing is known as the this person known as the nail bomber in the UK. It was a series of three bombings that took place um, in London or outside of London by a young man by the name of David Copeland. And Mr. O'Hara has researched this subject in great detail. I'm going to try to share on the screen right now a copy of his um, his article written back in the day from uh, a pan. Uh, really a zine or a magazine titled notes from the borderland. The title of the article is did MI five police and their media assets allow Copeland to plant his bombs and cover up before, during and after question mark, Larry O'Hara investigates. So um, I'm really, I'm delighted that Mr. O'Hara has taken time out of his day to talk about that subject. So Mr. O'Hara, are you there? Uh, yeah. And I hate to say it because most of them are, are idiots, but I am doctor. I've got a doctor. PhD. Oh. oh, well, congratulations. <laughs> what, in what subject matter is your doctorate in? Strange to say, uh, the far right, the National right. Front from 1986 to 90. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So we have uh, somebody, I mean, in your article, you said you've been following or been researching the far right in the UK for back then. And the article was 20 years. So now it's probably 40 years. And yeah, people, yeah. So few, yeah. So few, Since talk, I was yeah. at... Since I was at uh, university in the uh, in the late seventies, I mean, I have always been on the uh, political left, and in the late seventies, there was a lot of strange things going on. The fascists were quite strong numerically, and where I happened to be at university in, uh, in it was called Warwick University, but it's in Coventry in, in the British Midlands. There was. Um, a local landowner who was involved and I think he possibly had David Duke over to, over to uh, stay at his farm. And we were involved in sort of opposing that kind of stuff. And that's where I first came across um, not just the far right, but also people like the gatekeepers like Searchlight magazine, who used to not tell us anything and send us barking up the wrong tree. And later on, I realized why they were doing that. I didn't quite know that at the time. But there you go. So Searchlight was supposedly another kind of uh, magazine or investigative journal that was yeah, researching it's far still, It still sort of staggers on, but it su- suffered a major uh, split uh, about, ooh, it'll be about seven, eight years ago now, which we chronicled because we had information from both sides uh, by having somebody inside <laughs> they're not the only ones who can do infiltration uh yeah and uh they have had close links with the british intelligence services so their anti-fascist work is like a, a, one of a lower order of their priorities so if it conflicted with some of the others then that's the one that went Gotcha. And so you started very long ago. In what part of the UK were you uh, studying university? 
Uh, well, that was uh, in Warwick University in, in the British Midlands, although I come mm-hmm. from uh, Liverpool originally. Gotcha. And for anybody who knows England, if I confess to being an Everton supporter that at football, that will prove I come from Liverpool. There is another team, but I can't remember the name offhand. But the Midlands is kind of like a hotbed of some of these groups. I mean, I think, uh, you know, some yeah. of these uh, malefactors. So some of these groups that you know are the UK's National Action or Combat 18, National Socialist Movement. But the original one was National, was the British Union, right? That was the original far right. Oh, you're talking going back to... Uh... Going back to Oswald Mosley. Oswald Mosley, right. Uh, the least, the most hated person in British history, right? Uh, I think he, I think he won probably. some award like that. But Oswald oh, Mosley, yeah. World, he was yeah. like the British version of fascism. Back in the oh, he certainly was. He certainly was, yeah. But interestingly, a lot of the post-war fascist groups, like the National Front and the British Movement and so on, they don't bear... There's not so much direct ideological connection with Oswald Mosley, but of course, because he was from an upper class background and he married into the the Devonshire Duchess of Devonshire's family, a lot of the British media was sort of obsessed with him, and he he believed his own mythology, so he was in exile, waiting for the call that never came <laughs> for him to run the country. Yeah. Right. So they were very successful. So talk about the kind of post-war right-wing groups and how they, oh. how they started. Right. Oh, that's a big one. Um, well, as I say, post-war, you've got Oswald Mosley's, what was the British Union of Fascists before the war, became the Union Movement. But that basically ran into the sand, uh, really. But the more important strand were those who followed... Uh, a guy who in the 1930s called Arnold Lees, who was like a camel doctor, obsessively anti-Jewish. And he passed his his flame and his property onto another guy called Colin Jordan, who was a neo-Nazi, who uh, won the approbation of uh, Lincoln Rockwell. uh, And he did meet him. Right, he was the American Nazi party head. yeah. Yeah, the American Nazi party. And there was another guy called um, John Tyndall. And they were kind of in conflict because although they were both Nazis, uh, well, they fell out partly over. There was a a French heiress called uh, Christine Dior who came to England, a a rampant neo-Nazi. And she came to England with the express idea of marrying one or other of the top British Nazis. So she initially alighted on Colin Jordan and then uh, she alighted on when he was sent to jail for some public order offence. She then alighted on uh, John Tyndall and it was and then she went back to Jordan and she actually married Jordan, which really upset Tyndall. So he then begged Rockwell to expel Jordan. He didn't say it was personal. I mean, it wasn't. It was partly ideological as well. And in the end, to cut a long story short, there was a group, there was a strand of uh, pro-imperialist racist thought within the Conservative Party who had an organisation called the League of Empire Loyalists. And they used to disrupt Tory conferences by throwing flower bombs and denouncing uh, 
particularly Harold Macmillan, for decolonizing, saying he was a traitor. And they coalesced in 1967 to form the National Front. Uh, and that was the biggest far-right group. Uh, it became, you know, they stood 300 candidates at the 1979 election. But there was always a Nazi kind of undercurrent uh, existing. So there were sort of, the British movement was Jordan's continuation. I hope this is not too bizarre. No, no, it's pretty. Yeah, so you've got the Nazi strand continuing, and then you've also got the strand of fascists who, some of them under Tyndall may have been Nazi, but some of them were thinking a bit more out of the box. And after the uh, National Front were routed in the 1979 election, some of those people, it splintered into different uh, uh directions but some young people who are quite university educated joined the national front and they became influenced by some uh, italian exiles who were to an extent falsely some of them not some of them they were accused of various terrorist bombings in italy in the late 70s and the point about the italian justice system possibly now but certainly then is if you were charged, it's a bit like the Russian justice system. That's it. You know, the minute they get you in a court, then you're guilty. There's no, uh, <laughs> there's no, no, like, no, real there's trial. no, there's no real proper trial. So some of those people inf and influenced the National Front. And then the National Front was racked by internal disputes. And this small, ideologically sophisticated, but very small faction took over. They were the subject of my PhD called the political soldier national front now they ran into the ground but one of their leading members um, nick griffin he left them and he then joined he just hopped buses onto tyndall's british national party pushed tyndall out of the leadership and actually for a time they had some electoral success but of course the problem uh, that he faced is that he wanted to have to encourage the members to be ideologically sophisticated, but many of them weren't. I mean, I knew I knew he was in trouble when, in a magazine article, he quoted something I'd said about the membership structure, and I thought, if you're forced to quoting an opponent to explain how you're restructuring your membership, you're in real trouble, um, and. You know, one thing that's hampered far-right groups in this country electorally is our electoral system that basically, for most parla for parliamentary constituencies, you've got to get more votes than any other single candidate in that constituency. So you can rack up quite a few hundred thousand votes throughout the country, but not necessarily win a seat. He did win a seat under in the European Parliament for one term under a slightly different electoral system, uh, but then he lost it, and the BMP uh, they had heavy state action against them, which I think hasn't been recognised by a lot of people, um, and that probably contributed towards it. And then they splintered into nothing, and then some of their fragments went on to form these groups like National Action, thinking, oh well. 
elections are a waste of time. We're not going to get anywhere with them. And electorally, the far right are in the doldrums currently. It just never had any traction really after post-war. But the uh, when did this breakup and reconstitution into smaller groups take place? Was that the 80s or something like that, 70s? Well, um, the National Front, as I say, was the major group from 1967. And then in about 1980, in about 1980, 1981, when they were working out how they should respond to the electoral route in 1979, John Tyndall said, I'm fed up with all this discussions and meetings. Just give me the power. And the, the, the ruling body of the National Front, the directorate, said no. So he stormed off in a huff and formed what later became the British National Party. But he then gradually built it up. So it eclipsed the National Front, which then split into two between the people who were influenced by the sophisticated Italians and the people who were just populist, racist Tories, really. Uh, <clears throat> what do you think would the, was the national registered membership of the national front at its at its apex in its heyday in its heyday they probably had about maybe 20,000 members you know which isn't and so so these italians so the 80s come around and that's when you know this 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 group that started that ended up influencing copeland started right combat 18 national Ah, well yes i haven't mentioned them actually they started what happened is that the British movement, who were the Nazi strand led by Jordan, sort of ambled along, didn't really do very much. And when it looked like the BMP were doing well, winning a couple of ca- local council elections, because in a smaller ward with a certain smaller electorate, and if you can tap into local grievances, then that's how smaller groups can get somewhere. They a lot of people who had been inactive in politics uh, in in the British movement later became active, initially protecting British National Party meetings from uh, anti-fascist activists. And they then gave themselves the name uh, Combat 18. The the 18 is, if letters of the alphabet, one is uh, A and Hate is H, so combat Adolf Hitler. So they were quite explicit, which caused a bit of a problem for the BMP because they were trying to make out they were respectable and that they had all these neo-Nazis helping them. And they then were heavily infiltrated by the state. And they then, uh, in fact, they were, well, what was interesting, and it was one of the things that Searchlight magazine did, is for a long time, Searchlight magazine was saying um, this Combat 18 group, they were exaggerating their influence. This Combat 18 group is so dangerous, MI5 ought to investigate them. And then Searchlight suddenly turned tack and said, actually, Combat 18 were created by MI5. (laughs) So in which case, they either knew that when they originally said it or they didn't know it, in which case, why should we believe anything anything they say? 
So what's your opinion, uh, though, is that were they infiltrated or were they deliberately created? Oh, yeah, they were infiltrated. But no, I don't think they were created. And what is interesting is that um, one of the people who was like number three in the organization, somebody called Darren McAllister, although he used the name Wells, I think he uh, did his level best under the direction probably of the security services not just to have number one and number two at each other's throats, but there was also a um, a letter bomb campaign where from Scandinavia bombs were posted to left-wing and anti-racist opponents and uh, a, a white athlete married to a black partner. They posted bombs to them, most of which were intercepted. And I think... In fact, I'm reasonably certain he had a role in uh, the sending of those bombs and acting as a spokesperson for it. Uh, But what then happened is, in the ensuing furore, uh, they blamed the number one of the organisation for grassing them up for the police. But I think that was the security services were, were in on that as well. And when was that? When was that letter bombing completed? That was nineteen ninety-seven. So think, that was on, kind of the yeah, lead up to Copeland was nineteen ninety-nine. Yeah. So Copeland. So what happened then is because of that. Uh, oh, the other thing that happened actually, which explains where Copeland's group came from, is when the number one in the group, uh, Charlie Sargent, and number two in the group, Wilf Browning, when they Uh, had their faction fighting among themselves. On one occasion, Charlie Sargent and somebody called Martin Cross uh, went round to see another neo-Nazi, ostensibly to collect some work tools, building tools or whatever. And uh, the guy was then stabbed and killed. And they were eventually jailed for that murder. And what then happened is that there were a lot of media stories then. I mean, obviously that wasn't, that didn't do their faction any good, stabbing, killing somebody uh, when he hadn't attacked them. And that then was used by Searchlight and the media and security services to imply that Sargent had been a security service asset all along. Now, I'm not saying he hadn't, but I'd, I like the Scottish verdict, which is not proven. I've never seen any proof of it. And I've corresponded with the person who made the documentary uh, at the time, a journalist called Nick Davies. And I said to him, I've read your stuff on people who are agents of the police, where you quote the handler's reports and this, that and the other and dates. You didn't do any of that for Charlie Sargent. So what evidence have you got that he was actually working for the state? And his response was, oh, I was told this by people who were in a position to know. Well, yeah, but they'd also be in a position to lie and they might have had a motive to lie. So that really, it, it wasn't up to the previous standard of evidential proof that he put before. But it's good that he actually answered me that way because now, uh, now I kind of know that. So what then happened is a minority of supporters of combat 18 uh the, this charlie Sargent and his brother steve who was rather more clever than him which may not be difficult but 
true. Um, they formed the National Socialist Movement, which Mayat was involved in, and that was the grouping that Copeland joined. So it was a it was a fragment of a fragment. It was a split off from Combat 18. It was a successor organization. And he joined, I mean, I think you showed in your article that it was 1997. So the bombings happened like week after week, three bombings, uh, six successive weeks in 1999, yeah. April of 1999. That's right. right. Yeah. So yeah. how how did Copeland, do you know how he reached out or what, why he went towards that group instead of one of the other splinter groups? Well, if you were in the British National Party, which which he was, um, and co a group like Combat 18 would seem quite uh, radical. I mean, John Tyndall, he was a good speaker, but he just had one good speech, and that was it. And he'd been plugging the same thing for many years. So within a context of a party like the British National Party, given that they were not, Nazi but they had Nazis in them if somebody comes along to you if you're already a racist and a nationalist and and so on and actually uh, shows you some Nazi propaganda particularly stuff which takes the piss out of Tyndall uh, and sort of undermines him and so on you might think that that is uh, that is that is quite radical you know right. so you don't I mean the he was there is a photograph of Copeland. He attend, there was a meeting that John Tyndall had in the East End of London, uh, Stratford, where they were attacked by anti-fascists. And Copeland was, uh, you know, Tyndall was beaten up a bit. And Copeland, you could saw him standing next to Tyndall. So Copeland might have thought, oh, this is a bit bad. We've got to do something about this, you know. And, of course, doing something from a far-right perspective usually involves <laughs> violence of some right. sort. Yeah. So he had he had digested a bunch of literature. I mean, I think that he had the terrorist handbook or something like that downloaded from an internet cafe. Yeah, that's right. That was an interesting one because, you know, who actually encouraged him to do that is a good question because there was one person who was involved in the British National Party at, at the time, Tony Lacomba, who did have a track record of having been caught uh, in 1985, a few hundred yards away from a left-wing uh, premises uh, with bomb-making equipment and he, and he got a very low sentence, so he had a kind of you know, I'm not saying it was him at all necessarily, but, you know, yeah, somebody in the BMP uh, would have pushed him in that uh, in that yeah. direction. Right. So he but uh, the do you know what he read? Like I heard that there was like a band literature, how to start. What was it? Uh, Practical Guide to Aryan Revolution, which I don't. Think yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Which is said, which is quite plausible. That's I mean, you know, sometimes people say. Yeah, yeah, I know that. I've got everything. I haven't got everything. I've probably got about... Of of stuff that Combat 18 produced, I've probably got about 90%. But that's one, that's one of the 10% I haven't got. However, if I could just find it... Yeah, just hold on. Please do. Uh, 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 
yeah, there was another document which Myatt, uh, these are David Myatt, which Myatt uh, produced round about the same time. This is 1995, System Breakdown, A Guide to Disrupting the System. And he says, the national fabric of society has to be broken down. Good example is food. Disruption of food supply would cause problems. You know, in other words, he's advocating a total destruction of existing society. And he says here, to bring it about, we need to disrupt and the supply of everyday commodities, particularly food to shops. Well, COVID-19 has done that for him, hasn't it? Uh, basic public services need to be disrupted. Water pumping stations and sewer treatment works need to be disrupted. Television masts are a prime target. Disrupting roadside boxes for traffic lights. So in other words, he's talking about, uh, you know, a physical destruction of the things that provide the infrastructure of modern life. So although I've seen quotes from that Aryan Guide to Revolution, but it it sounds very similar to this this document written under uh, one of his many pseudonyms, Godric Redbeard. Redbeard. Oh, oh, he's a one for pseudonyms. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he's so supposedly what Godric Redbeard, Anton Wong, uh, these other tons of pseudonyms. Possibly, possibly, yeah. Well, that's right. You know. Um, but so that guide for Aryan Revolution, you can't find it. It's a banned book in England, is my understanding, and I think it's been yeah, inserted, right. you know, inserted into some. I mean, I have, I have hopes of still getting it because I'm still amassing uh, uh, literature, even of Combat Eighteen literature. So. Um, I wouldn't rule out me getting it, but I haven't got it yet. But you, I mean, it's pretty interesting that you actually have a hard copy of that because that's how all of these missives or pamphlets or things were spread around at that time. Is that the kind of way that Combat 18 or National Socialist Movement communicated was through three or four uh, pages? Yeah, letters? yeah, they didn't, they didn't do all the... Um, I mean, it's interesting. He went to the Internet Cafe to download stuff, but they they didn't do stuff via the Internet. I mean... And the interesting thing, while we're on Combat 18, okay. just behind me, um, virtually every far-right uh, literature of significance was printed by this one printer that everybody knew about uh, called Tony Hancock down on the South Coast. And you might think, why wasn't he prosecuted? And the answer is, of course, I think the police were quite happy to leave him in place. And uh, if I just find it, yeah. For the viewers, people who can see the video of this, you can tell that Larry has compiled just, uh, <laughs> well, volumes and volumes of literature that you can see in the back. Yeah, I'm just looking for mm, the magazine, which should be. Let's have a look. Uh, yeah, talk among yourselves. Okay. Uh, um, just like Combat 18 is interesting too, yeah, because like there's right. all the, yeah there's all this, it. it's okay, yeah. but there's all this literature being prepared for Combat 18, but he's also writing this other stuff like this occult stuff at the same time in the 80s and 90s. So he's he's concurrently creating this, but the occult stuff mimics or yeah. is clearly informed from his National Socialist. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there have been occasions when Myatt has uh, denied it. Uh, Again, if I've got, hopefully I can find this. Uh, 
Yeah. You see, this is one. This was sent out in uh, 1994 by Myatt. He's even signed this one. By in his own <laughs> name? Interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. It. yeah. Well, the reason why is because he was under attack for his his previous or his occult ideas. And he says, he says here, uh, my actual involvement with the occult, um, which was just for a few months before some interview, and a few months afterwards, arose out of national curiosity. From this arose a desire to infiltrate and use various groups for national socialist ends. So, in other words, he's basically saying that here in 1994, oh, he was only involved in the occult for a short time, and it was just to propagate Nazi ideas, which is, of course, untrue. Right. It's total baloney. You know? Yeah. No, he's yeah. writing this. If I can quote another another autobiographical writing here, he says... He wanted the strategy, did not seem to be working. I had yearned and did again yearn for a national socialist revolution within 10 years. After nine years, the NSDAP of Adolf Hitler had hundreds of thousands of members and was in striking distance of power. We had a few hundred committed followers, and even the nationalist organizations had only a few thousand members with no political influence, no prospects whatsoever. Where were the organizations we needed? Then he says, perhaps covert action was the only way to create the revolution. So he's definitely writing this revolutionary stuff from the right, the racist right. And he says, yeah. just goes on, he says, I remember my occult studies, blah, blah, blah. He says the final aim was to attract people to these groups, gain information. And I mean, he had, yeah, very strange stuff. But he definitely admits in other writings, this was uh, toward David Myatt, towards identity in the Galactic Empire, autobiographical notes, part one. He writes this. And, yeah. Yeah, he's certainly well. prolific and he's certainly yeah. intelligence as well yes yeah there's no doubt about it well that's yeah. another question he's intelligent but is he intelligence right with a capital i <laughs> well you could you could uh make that kind of case uh, and if you did you would say um well first of all is is wanderings all over the political spectrum you know, including becoming a convert to Islam at one point right, right. would be the type of things you would expect an intelligence asset to do. Uh, the second thing is it has been claimed intermittently by uh, Searchlight that he may have been involved. There was a, a peace campaigner called Hilda Morrell who lived in Shrewsbury. It's a big kind of cause celebre where... Essentially, she was giving evidence about nuclear power stations and stuff like this. And she was abducted in 1984. She was abducted from a home and then eventually a few days later found dead in a field. And it looks like there was probably some intelligence uh, involvement. But of course, there were a couple of local youths were convicted of it but most people don't think including local people in Shrewsbury who I've spoken to don't really think it was them and some people have said that Maya was part of a small intelligence cell that uh, carried out the abduction I don't know the answer to that but uh, at all 
but it's certainly, I, w- I would certainly wouldn't rule it out. But that was where he was. His locale was. I think he's in Shropshire, which is very close. To that Shrewsbury. was yeah. Well, he's moved around. You know, yeah. Malvern, Shrewsbury, Shropshire, Norfolk. But, they, but you whatever. can see in his writings, he has like this Welsh mythology integrated into his stuff. So you can kind of tell. It seems like that yeah. locale and stuff has bled into his ideas. Although he was brought up in, um, I think, in uh, Africa originally. Yeah, Zimbabwe or somewhere like Tanzania. Yeah. Yeah. Right. His dad worked for yeah. the British Civil Service overseas. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, it wouldn't interesting if he turned out to have been a spy of some sort. <laughs> well, you just never know. But he was raided. His house was raided prior to yeah. the bombings of Copeland, which we haven't gotten to. We're doing a lot of background, which is great. Yeah. But uh, yeah. he was raided, charged with publishing hate material that was later dropped, which is somewhat suspicious yeah. as well. So that's kind of makes you sit up yeah. in your chair. Um, so Copeland's around, Combat 18, you have the National Socialist Movement. And what led up, I mean, you. it was interesting, like uh, when I was reading your article as well, you likened the Copeland bombings to the UK or you analogized it to the US Oklahoma City bombings. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I certainly don't think Timothy McVeigh did them on his own. I think. No, I don't either. Yeah. I think. I think. I think we can say that's. Uh, was it William Strassmeyer? Is a name that leaps out at me. That's but, right. You know, yeah. No, Strassmeyer yeah. was one of these guys. There were a yeah. bunch of people. Some people went to jail, but so that guy disappeared back to Europe. Strassmeyer yeah. was very much involved in this whole Turner Diaries, white supremacist world yeah. and and that he yeah. worked and right. then disappeared there was all kind i mean even timothy mcveigh himself there's real questions about him well that's right in other words what did mcveigh think he was doing you know and it, it, it's it's similar to copeland really if he had somebody i just don't credit that copeland was clever enough to have uh thought out a lot of these uh tactics and strategy and even technology himself i just don't i just don't credit it but did copeland imagine he was part of a cell one thing i will be able to find uh because i couldn't find a magazine although it's there somewhere okay is oh yeah there's another very interesting document which some people have suggested myatt wrote this see if i can just find a good copy of it it's called the white wolves right so the white wolf documents and i tell you what it's one of the most uh chilling things i've read you quote that uh uh, quote that in your article as well the border yeah yeah that's right and you see what's interesting about that is that here we are I will get there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, these are just these are just pages from it. What's interesting about that is that it um, sort of predicts a kind of political polarisation as a result of bombs leading to, you know, ethnic communities being polarised against each other, which uh, is quite sophisticated politically, um, you know, and certainly Copeland is clever enough to have written that all right so maybe uh, maybe what we can do or can you go into there just do like a real you know introductory version of what copeland did when he did it why he chose certain areas 
and what the results oh, right. are. Because for the American audience, may not be that familiar. Yeah, yeah. L luckily, I'll have the magazine for that. Okay. So, first of all, there were three bombs that he planted. The first bomb was in uh, an area of London called Brixton. Uh, a lot of sort of Afro-Caribbean sort of people there. And what he did is he uh, maybe panicked slightly, I don't know, but he left a, a sports bag with a bomb in, sort of, you know, he just sort of left it uh, in the street. Uh, and that exploded. That it was, was moved. Actually, two of the bombs that yeah, he left were picked somebody. up and walked yeah, away right. and moved them. They and that was it. April 17th, 1999. So. Yeah, that's right. I've got that. Yeah. And uh, there is film showing him. One of the interesting things, of course, is that uh, I'm just looking at my article now. He actually visited a pub for 20 minutes before. He got in the taxi where he went to South London. Now, it could have been he just wanted to get some Dutch courage, as they say, right. but there could have been some other uh, reason. Right. Then there's various intermittent gaps uh, in the footage, which may or may not be uh, significant. And then, uh, yeah, the other thing is worth noting is that there was some uh, detonators found near where the bomb exploded, which is interesting. In other words, they weren't him. So are they showing gaps? Are there gaps in the CCTV footage uh, because they might have shown other people? I mean, right. I went to the trial and it was a joke trial because there wasn't any proper defence. Therefore, there wasn't any proper questioning of witnesses. Uh, he never really... Uh, gave evidence but it was interesting because if i hadn't have gone for the trial i wouldn't have got the level of detail to show what the gaps are so there's uh, gaps in the cctv video right footage <laughs> yeah and the other really big problem with the, with the video of brixton is it was held onto for quite a time they didn't release it straight away now of course they claimed that I think it was claimed that it was held on to because it was went even abroad for processing. Right. You said it's so to on, the US, I, don't right. Really, right. I don't really buy that, even if it did go to the US. You know, it relates to the fact that if various sections of the state, not necessarily the police investigating it, but if various sections of the state knew who it was who'd done it and they wanted to allow it to run then it wouldn't suit them for him to be uh, caught that right. soon. So you said, I so think that... you wrote like 10 cameras weren't functioning. They blamed the Serbians. The Serbians were supposed to be oh, yeah. the main yeah, like right. thing. So yeah. it's like some strange kind of deflections were taking place. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So I'm just looking there. And then I'm just looking to see about Brixton. Yeah, yeah that's right. They had a call on... Uh, to a, a local crime program called Crime Watch, where somebody from Combat 18 claimed responsibility. They could have played that call to see if any members of the public recognised the voice, but they never did. You know, well, interesting. So that you was know. Brixton. That was kind of like an, an immigrant African, yeah. whatever, you know, kind of tinged. 
Yeah, uh, 12 uh, days it allegedly took for the photos to be developed. Yeah. And actually thinking about it, or not thinking about it, just reminding myself, is the footage that they eventually used was not, didn't seem to be the footage they claimed had been sent away. It was actually footage from a street camera that hadn't been sent away at all. So it really doesn't, it doesn't add up. Gotcha. Uh, so then, then April 24th happened in Brick Lane. And why did why did people think he chose that, that area to lay a, put a bomb? Well, people might choose uh, Brick Lane because uh, on, on the opposite side of the river from uh, Brixton, that was where in recent times, it's always been a home for refugees. Like in the 18th century, 17th century, there were Huguenot refugees from France. But in the 20th century, uh, sort of uh, predominantly a Asian people from sort of India and Pakistan uh, and Bengal were living there. And in fact, I'm just wondering, yeah, no, no, because they issued, the other thing is we might get to it. Uh, there were various communiques that White Wolves released. White Wolves, right. So those, I think you had like included four in that article four. Yeah, I've got, I've got some of them. There's an original. There it is. That one. Interesting. Uh, and some of them are sort of copies of of different of different things. So that's why that would have been bombed. Um, now, about uh, yes, about Brick Lane. So that's the the motive is quite clear. But I'm just looking also, and also, I mean. I've no doubt that Copeland was involved. The question isn't whether Copeland was involved. The question is, who might have put him up to it? And did he have help constructing the devices and the targeting and the overall strategy questions? Those are the questions, not uh, just a simple one about whether he was involved or not. I'm looking here at my stuff. And there's again, there's, there, there is evidence. Uh, again, just like at Brixton, there's evidence showing that he went to the area, but then there's large gaps, time gaps, where CCTV doesn't appear to be working. Now, the thing about London, England generally, but London even then, is more CCTV cameras than virtually anywhere else in the known universe in central London. Not usually East London, but when we get to Soho in particular. So that is a that is an interesting... Uh, and the, the composition gets, uh, of the bombs, did it match what was designed in the terrorist handbook? It was basically a nail bomb, right? Yeah, not too sophisticated, mm -hmm. but sophisticated enough to do uh, to do the job. And I think the brick yeah. lane, that bomb was also moved, right? He left it somewhere. and somebody Yeah, that's right. It, right. Somebody, yeah. some uh, Irish bloke came along and, uh, and moved it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. this was before all the kind of terror, fear and stuff like that. I mean, this is right. Well, I say, be be yeah, before. I mean, before then, of course, there has been uh, uh, the IRA have the IRA, had right. been known to have planted bombs in uh, in right. London. Yeah. So then he's so that's two bombs and then the third. So he started his bombings April seventeenth. The final bomb was the most lethal. That was yeah, uh, Soho right. April thirtieth. Yeah, and that is the uh, 
worst one, of course, because I'm not saying the Brixton one wasn't bad, but the worst one because uh, it led to fatalities, including of a woman who had uh, an unborn baby at the time. And also the Soho one is interesting because of the so many different strands that seem to point to elements of the state having had foreknowledge of it. So, I mean, the first one is, and I think I did count, uh, I did count the number somewhere, but basically there are a lot of um, venues in central London where we, I don't know whether they use the same phrase in America, but like gay clubs and bars. Gay bar, yeah, gay bar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now, this was a gay bar. He chose a gay yeah. bar in Soho, right? Yeah. yeah, that's right. But what was really interesting is a week before the uh, Soho bombing, uh, the, all the premises on that street of the Admiral Duncan, that's, that's where it was, they were all visited by a local police team warning them to be on their guard because, you know, they might be a target. But no other uh, venues, gay venues, were visited. Well, why would you just pick out that thing? And one of the reasons why might be that if he was picked up planting the Brixton bomb, uh, sorry, the Brick Lane bomb, never mind the Brixton bomb, one thing that he did on the same day as he did Brick Lane is he went to Soho to a pub. So if they'd have been following him planting the bomb at Brick Lane and then following him to Soho, he may well have gone to the Admiral Duncan. I think he, you know, to, and you would have had an idea. But they just told the people on that street. They didn't tell any of the other hundreds of gay venues well, that's a bit suspicious. But then, of course, the other thing is that a journalist called David Northmore, he uh, wrote, I've got it in front of me here. Uh, he wrote um, that Gays on Fascist Bomb Alert, and that was published on the same day as the Soho bombing. So obviously right. went to print a day before. I've got it in front of me. Right. <laughs> you, you said it was it. from the pink paper. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. That's from your article, on right. So alert. how did he know that? Right. So how did he know that? Now, of course, when I then looked into that, um, and I should say at around this time, he, Northmore, uh, I, around this time, I had, after the first bomb or maybe the second um, I, I move in many circles and one of the circles I move in is the weekly, then weekly paper, I think it's now monthly, of uh, Sinn Féin in uh, Northern Ireland, Republican News. Somebody suggested they contact me for an article on the Soho bombings, uh, which I did. So I think as a result of the, uh, not Soho bombings, sorry, the earlier bombings. And then I was also on the Channel 4 News, which is one of our major news channels. I was on there a couple of times while the bombings were going on. So Northmore contacted me and he was very interested in pumping me for information about this and that. Uh, He didn't tell me, of course, about he'd had that uh, alert but it looks like there was 
uh, an organization called Rank Outsiders, which was uh, organized by somebody with the wonderful name of Duncan Lustig Breen. I'm afraid double barrel names always crack me up. <laughs> but he, uh, he said in one of his newsletters that secure, his security services had warned him that gays right. might be next. So in other words, you've got a, you've got a mood and music of foreknowledge. And if you'd have asked me who I'd have thought would have been next, to be honest, if I'd have been betting, I would have bet most of my money on the Jewish target next. You know, so I, I wasn't surprised it was a gay target, but I wouldn't have necessarily. That wouldn't have been. I would have been my number two pick, but not my number one pick at all. Because in know? their literature, they—I mean, the literature that I read—they really uh, are very anti-Semitic, but they don't yeah, really—they don't really bicker about gays that much. I don't even remember even one. Well, yeah, yeah, they do. They seem they to do. really have their they animus towards Jews. Okay. Yeah, um, they do a bit. And there was a guy, I think he was an ex-soldier called Colin Ireland, who was on the fringes of Combat 18, who was possibly bisexual, who did murder a few gay people himself. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, well, know, just, to, yeah. just to let people know, the, the Soho bombing was the most lethal as well. You said three people died, but like, I think yeah. 100 people were injured, some lost limbs. Oh, yeah. Very severe... Like nail, there was a picture of a nail and a baby's head. It was just hor- like a horror show. Yeah, uh, that was so, Brixton yeah. actually. But a lot oh, was that Brixton? Did. Okay, sorry. Yeah, but yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So the nail bombs did. They may not have killed people, but they maimed like one or two hundred people. I think something yeah. sizable. And and if you want, yeah, yeah, more evidence or indications about foreknowledge. Um, on the day of the Soho bombing, it's been reported that. Uh, a local police unit, a police unit who were tailing Copeland, actually phoned up the local police station, West End Central, which is quite close to Soho. It's only about 800 yards. Phoned them up saying, we're tailing somebody and we've lost him. Can you help? So you've got that. And then you've also got, after the bombings, there was a, there was a police community consultative committee where they admitted somebody admitted there that that they were monitoring him and then they lost him so the evidence is quite and i just find it very frustrating you know on a personal level even that there is another case and i think i mentioned it so one of my colleagues did when she did a because we we keep returning to this story we're like a dog with a bone you know we don't give up um there was a famous case where uh, a black teenager stephen lawrence was murdered was stabbed in a random racist killing and a couple of youths have been jailed for it but some of the others who were involved have sort of got away with it, it would appear. And there's been an ongoing campaign for justice for that investigation, which is great. And I don't disagree with that. But who has taken an interest in justice here? Nobody. So, you I know, mean, he, he was... People. Yeah, Copeland was pretty much just... Uh, he did. He said he worked alone, he told that, and he was put right... Well, initially he said that. He later changed his mind. But, of course, if you were part of a cell then when you're captured, that's what you would say, isn't it, first right, of all? Right. 
And that's kind of, I mean, that's the way the literature indicates is for these people to be a non, it's supposedly a non-hierarchical, you know, cellular structure of, of revolution, right? Isn't that really yeah. what they, how the, they wanted it designed, the guys at the head of the, you know, radical racist right? Well, I think that is the point. And of course, it's it's not just in the um, in the UK. I mean, there is one of the many things that is, uh, ideological inferences go cross both ways across the Atlantic. And one of the uh, people that are influenced by, I was just looking at his, a couple of copies of his newsletter I've got, is uh, somebody called Louis Beam, who wrote an American far rightist who wrote a magazine called The Seditionist. And he advocated something called leaderless resistance. resistance. And of course, this links in a bit with, say, even with the ONA currently. And of course, the thing is, if you put these ideas out there and you want to encourage people to copy them and they don't have to tell anybody else, on the one hand, you could say, it makes it a bit more difficult to track these people down. But on the other hand, it also makes it not too difficult to, if you hang around in the same milieu as potential adherents, to entrap people. You know, so it works kind of, it works kind of both ways. Both ways. Um, Yeah, it's fascinating because I think we talked in our last conversation about this one, Adam Waffen guy who kind of had the same leaderless resistance ideas as, as Myatt or combat. Yeah. 18. Yeah, that's right. And, and of course, well, I mean, I was looking, I mean, I might have missed it to see if I could just fucking find it, but I looked at the Adam Waffen division and I know there have been uh, a few more arrests more recently. Yes. People have been charged. Yeah, some in the stuff. UK. I think some in the UK and some in the States. Oh yeah. 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 But you know what? I think at this point, uh, I've I have many sins to my name apart from uh, being an Everton supporter, uh, and one of them is half of my first degree was in sociology, which is not uh, a well-regarded subject, I don't think. But there's a very interesting concept in uh, sociology. Um, it's called sort of. The two concepts are folk devils and moral panics. And basically what it refers to is the way in which the media can build people up and construct them as evils, you know, folk devils. And then having constructed that and sort of exaggerated their significance, which is, I think, what happened with Combat 18, can then, having done that, can then create moral panics about them where people have to be obsessed by them. And so if I take the Atom Waffen division, as I understand it, I could be wrong. I've got, in 2017, two members were killed by this guy, Devin Arthurs. Andrew, interestingly, apart from him, most of them seem to have Eastern European sounding names. Andrew Oriusluk or whatever, Jeremy Himmelman. So it is root. So he killed two people. Then there was called uh, there was Brandon Russell who was jailed for explosives. Then there was somebody called Nicholas Giampa who shot his grand his uh, girlfriend's parents. So we're up to a count of four. And then in two thousand and eighteen, uh, 
there was uh, a young uh, gay bloke called Blaise Bernstein right, who was killed here. by Samuel Woodward. Yeah, Orange so County you've got... Kid. Yeah, so I've got so far, there may have been others, but I haven't seen them. There have been five actual deaths, murders, carried out by the Atom Waffen Division. I know there have been these other plots, but of course, I always make a distinction between plots and actual things that have actually been carried out. Um, In fact, there's a famous, famous, probably not famous to me, pamphlet about the British left, and it's called When This Pub Closes. And what it deals with is the fact that in the pub, people talk about, oh, yeah, when this pub closes, I'm going to do this, that and the other. And, of course, when the pub closes, well, they forget it and they sleep it off. But what I'd say is... If I think that in 2017, there were three people killed, let's say four people killed who were something to do with the Atom Waffen Division. Now, I've got figures for murders in the US in 2017, and my figure is 17,294. In 2018, whether you've got one, Blaise Bernstein, good news is, there are only 16,214 people killed. Now, that's not to minimise, A, the significance, obviously, for those individuals who were killed and their families, but just to say that maybe you need to put some of it into, into context and say, well, if, in fact, you know, the numbers of people being killed is in single figures. Now, I know Anders Brevik in... Norway killed a lot more but if the numbers being killed are in single figures I think it's not that you need to you shouldn't take such groups seriously but you should actually just stand back a bit and say well uh, are there other murders that are equally significant that should be looked at that maybe the media aren't really interested in you know just just a cause just to put things a bit and then say well Actually, you could, you know, if you could see the neo-Nazi groups as like uh, the Hydra, you cut one head off and another two appear. So you ban one group, the Atomwaffen Division, the Feuerkrieg, all these other groups, and then others appear. You ban them on one internet platform and they appear on others. And of course, what you do by having all these major media stories about them you then almost get self-fulfilling prophecy whereby if you are a disaffected, bored, white male, well, I'll come to non-white in a bit, but white male, then that can make you think, oh, well, if these people are being criticised, maybe I should go on the internet and look into them. So then you get some people who might have randomly killed people before for whatever no particular political reason then get a new identity so it's maybe those things about what is it that leads sort of it is usually young males into attraction to these groups and of course if you take i mean i know there are some uh white people who get converted to islamism but then you're also talking about uh you know al-qaeda and isis and certainly the numbers of people who've been killed, certainly in the UK, 
as a result of uh, bombings, like in, uh, you know, or stabbings or whatever, are rather more than have been killed by the far right. And I wonder, I have a suspicion, let's put it that way, that I think one of the reasons in the UK why these groups, neo-Nazi groups are being hyped is to try and even the balance to make people think that the far right are as much of a danger as these Islamist groups, whereas I think the statistics of people who are killed don't seem to don't seem to show that, uh, really. But I mean, the, the, when did you say the far right is like? Uh, I mean, they had they were threatening revolution and wanting to change the entire political structure of the UK. Wouldn't you agree with that? That, that that's what those core. Oh yeah. Well, some of the people, the people on the. Uh, the neo-Nazi far right, yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely doing that. As are the Islamists as well. Right. Well, yeah. this is true. Well, that that's a good point. So, what were I mean, the kind of? Point... Sorry, I was going to say just one point there. I mean, you look at the writings of Myatt, uh, probably by Myatt, which we, we've outlined. But then there's another text called the uh, the management of savagery. I don't know if you've ever come across that, but that is like a manual which is kind of advocating quite similar disruptive uh, random acts of violence, driving lorries into people from a different ideological uh, perspective. Interesting. And that savagery, was it supposed to be for the right, far right, or was that for Islam? No, no, it's an Islamist one. And there is some kind of overlap between them. I mean, if you take that guy, uh, Meltzer, who's recently been charged obviously he's not being convicted but it is alleged that he looked at jihadist stuff as well as order of nine angles stuff and he wanted to contact an al-qaeda affiliate to attack his own unit with with the order of nine angles mixed up in it some way (laughs) right well they have a picture of him for people who don't know this was a young man ethan Meltzer. his fake name was etel ragad which is dagger light backwards but he was arrested in southern district of new york the same district that elaine maxwell was arrested and most recently uh bannon stephen bannon for fraud were arrested but uh Ethan Meltzer, according to the indictment, this was uh, May 30th, actually. He joined the ONA. He was a member of the ONA, which was formulated by David Myatt. And uh, I think he had a, he had a article with the title Harvest of Soldiers in His iCloud. And he was, let's see, they said he was plotted a deadly, deadly ambush on his fellow soldiers in the service of a diabolical cocktail of ideologies laced with hate and violence, said the assistant attorney general. John C. Deemers. So they had a picture of him with a, a pamphlet titled The Sinister Tradition, Order of Nine. Yeah, which I have a copy of. I'll just show you. Yeah. yeah, this one. Yep, that's it. The same the same picture. So, And of course, um, I, I, read, I read through it, sort of skim read through it, and uh, well, it would certainly... Uh, a cure for insomnia, I would say. But, um, you know, there's, there's, there's an element of these kind of uh, a quasi-religious element of this kind of stuff where it's about 
if you have an individual who is, you know, bereft, don't hasn't feel they haven't got much of an identity, it sort of gives them a kind of, you know, developmental task. But what I thought was interesting is I looked at other Order of Nine Angles stuff. This is a very similar mm -hmm. uh, book, also written mostly by David Myers. And of course, it quite clearly advocates uh, human sacrifice. Yes. You know, the sacrifice will be akin to an act of natural justice. You know, yeah, he calls how you people, choose them. Yeah, the German term for it, like they use a rune, it's called the opfer rune. And they yeah. call it calling. And he has a very kind of very elitist view because everybody yeah. who isn't a member of the ONA is the mundanes. And to actually prove of your satanic uh, qualifications, you have to engage in human sacrifice. He says, this yeah. is a direct quote, if I can say, this is from Lapis Philosophicus, which is, if there's one thing which expresses the essence of the satanic ethos, it is calling. And if there's one way to detect a pseudo-Satanist, it is their attitude to calling. So it's basically just calling for human murder. Yes, and they don't like the Church of Satan and the Temple of Set. They, they don't like Crowley either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. He, he positions himself against Crowley and Michael Aquino. And there's all kinds of writings yeah. between himself and Aquino. And they actually said that they, they were the ones who exposed him according to their responses or their missives were back in the nineties is you had somebody yeah. with a different name, but we all know it was the same person. You and they're saying that to Maya. So Maya is still well, alive. Right. I think he's in his seventies. So yeah, he I'm... is, he is still, he is still alive. And it's interesting because I haven't got it with me now, but I, I was looking at some stuff of his a few months ago and there was all this stuff that was a supposed uh, obituary of him and then he's commenting it wasn't really an obituary I was just playing a game to see what your reactions were that's the thing about Myatt is you cannot believe anything he says at all which for somebody who aspires to be a fount of wisdom is I would suggest rather a setback if you think about it <laughs> well they have a very important aspect of their like individual training is to take on an insight roles insight role means you become something other than yourself you stay loyal to the ideology of the ona but you become an islamist or a, a catholic priest or something totally different just to learn what it's like but you still keep the the kind of doctrines of the the ona keep going which is chaos violence murder you know really awful principles but uh, i think the idea from their point of view if there is an idea, is that if you cause the existing society to collapse, you can then build your new society on top of it. But of course, because all they are is destructive, all that would actually happen is it would make uh, Mad Max look like a comedy film. Yeah, no, you're absolutely <laughs> right. But they, they want to have a satanic you know, political system, a satanic influence political system, which some could say is really what Hitler was up to. The, uh, the ONA never renounces right. Hitler, their their fascinate, their real uh, affinity or even love for Adolf Hitler and his ideas. So no, their, and they, they, yeah. they date everything from, of their writings from its proximity to Hitler's birthday. Right, 1889. So, yeah. So. yeah, so in other words, they would say we were now in... Y F one three one, 
I think. They yeah. use the term feyen, which means rejoicing. So it's we're rejoicing at the time of Hitler, and they call him or liken him to this principle, this avenging principle called Vindex. So all yeah. the murders Hitler committed in the war World War II were positive, right? So it's kind of like the Crowley view or the evolutionary view where if you kill off the weak, cull the weak, you're creating evolutionary change for the benefit of humanity, which is totally... But what, one of the great ironies, of course, is that Himmler especially dabbled in the occult, and Hitler was quite influenced by it. And the British intelligence used that fact to uh, spread disinformation, to disarm the Nazis, to make them think that they weren't going to attack at Normandy when they did, and, and all, all, all those kind of things. So they actually... There was a, a somebody called Alec Cow who was involved in the British Secret Service during the war, and he wrote an interesting book called Astrology and Secret Warfare in World War Two. Wow! Encounter about how they countered Hitler because it doesn't really matter whether you believe what your opponent believes if they believe it. Right. Then that is an actionable. Uh, I really want to read that book because that's apparently how Ian Fleming lured Hess to. Uh, Scotland was through planting astrological things through his contacts in Germany, oh, right. which Hess, Hess learned, and then yeah. that was the decision to go and go meet up with the so-called link, which really, really didn't exist. I think the guy. Well, there was the was... link, but they were just they were just heavily infiltrated, oh, right, uh, so. by the British. Uh, they even had the one of their people, Joan Miller, was. Um, was a membership secretary, which is quite handy. <laughs> yeah, but wasn't she? Wasn't she working for Maxwell Knight? I thought that Miller yeah, was Maxwell. Right. Yeah, so it's fairly, right. really fascinating because JFC Fuller was a member was a member of the British Union of Fascists, who was a Crowley, really yeah, one yeah. of Crowley's chief followers back in the nineteen before World War One. But it's a fascinating. Well, he, was a, he, he was a he was a character, Crowley, wasn't he? I mean, didn't he? Didn't he at one point offer his services to both the, the Germans and the British in World yeah, War One? I? I think he was probably but, a triple agent. That's why he was kicked yeah. out of France, and that's why he was kicked out of but, Italy, and that's what he was, he was doing in World War One. But like Mussolini, and unfortunately, unlike Hitler, I think Crowley was a coward, uh, oh, whereas I, I think Hitler, Hitler wasn't, but Mussolini and Crowley were, yeah. Yeah, I would say. I'd say physical coward. I think Crowley was definitely a physical yeah. coward. But he would do yeah. – he was clearly working for intelligence when he was in the States. Yeah. Well, but, it's a bit like a bit like Myatt, really, that you couldn't really believe anything that Crowley said. You know, uh, you couldn't really – you couldn't really credit it, you know. There was, so there, was, he, there was actually some commentaries about Crowley that some people said the same thing. They, they weren't really sure if he really believed his philosophy. What yeah. they really believed is he loved cocaine and <laughs> drinking alcohol. Like that was... And the, and the skull, that week, Scarlet Woman as well. Yeah, yeah, Scarlet Woman. So, but you know, here's the thing is that you can liken or you can you can look at Myatt and Crowley in the same way is that they left this repository of literature that other people pick up and take them seriously. So they have this view yeah. of them, these leaders, that they're 100% serious. Well, that's the thing the you see. I mean, you could you could say. I mean, the actual question about uh, although it's interesting to know that Maya probably did write most of the Order of Nine Angles stuff, but in the end, once it's released and it's out there and it's in book form, uh, 
then and it encourages people to actually you know start up themselves in their right. own way then it doesn't really matter who wrote it right originally it's writing is up. it's interesting biographically but no you're really it's really true it but there's matter. there's a much more vast corpus of literature of the ONA than the public knows there's thousands of pages yeah tons of yeah that's right and it's interesting because qu- quite a few of them like they had a magazine called Fenrir um, and I, I have been sent a couple of them. And over the years, myself and other organisations that I'm in friendly touch with have received communications at the time, which were obviously from Maya or his acolytes, trying to draw us into writing about them and taking them seriously. You know, But I'm afraid we have a view of, we say, well, what, you know, because we choose what we research so we can say well if somebody i don't like wants me to do this then i'm not going to do it (laughs) well it's interesting you say that because they really haven't been that publicized they haven't been successful in really becoming as popular a figure as crowley or something like that everybody seems to know his name but the ona does not i mean if you look at their listenership of online materials things that are on archive.org there's barely a thousand downloads but you know, I think if you all you need is just a few people like Copeland to, yeah. Do what you and it's also do. it's also James James Mason as well as Siege. You know, you, although you can't, I've got hold of the book uh, eventually, but <laughs> it wasn't easy, and it wasn't through a bookseller. So, uh, have you ever read the Turner Diaries? Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's probably yeah. all the same. It's all post-apocalypse, mass murder, well, hangings. I'd say I'd say a difference is uh, I'm just looking at the Turner Diaries and Hunter in the corner there. I'd say the difference is that the Turner Diaries has a straightforward Nazi ethos to it, and it's actually a bit boring in the sense that once you know the basic ideology, this what you know one-dimensional individual Earl Turner just goes around killing people. Whereas the thing about uh, occult stuff, like the Order of Nine Angles stuff, is it has this, I think it's illusory, but it has this kind of promise that places the individual, it gives them great significance in the world. So it's not just a political ideology, it's something which can... uh, give seek to give meaning to their existence which is of course one of the things that orthodox religion does so i think there's a bit more there's a bit more to it no there's a cosmology there's an afterworld there's supposedly this thing of eternal life like you can yeah there's all kinds of very strange doctrines in there that i haven't seen in other things but uh yeah the fact that they you know what are the nine angles? There's about seven different explanations as to what the nine angles mean. That's true. You know? <laughs> well, they, I mean, and then, I mean, they're supposedly Lovecraftian. They don't believe, they think that Satan is one of many dark figures. So they have a kind of uh, yeah. galaxian or galaxy level um, cosmology. Bacchum, and, and all these right. Yeah, very strange. Yeah. And of course, although I haven't seen it offhand, explicit reference to it in my although it's probably there somewhere because i haven't read all of his stuff by any means but there was that interesting woman savitri devi who was hitler's 
priestess. Right, yes. You know, yeah. who's quite who, who did come to England. In fact, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that she might have met Myers. I don't know that she did, but it's possible. I think uh, that he said that they came out of somewhere in the Midlands that he got some kind of hold off from some woman, some Wiccan type female. And that's yeah. the foundation of the ONA. Yeah, in that's right. Or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I've got, I've not <laughs> seen it uh, published in uh, books. I mean, the standard book on it is all the stuff by um, Nick, Nicholas Goodrick Clark, right, who, who wrote that stuff on it. Yeah. And I was looking at his uh, stuff. And he doesn't reference somebody called Elizabeth Selwyn. Yeah, his book is Black Sun, Aryan Cults, Esoteric Nazism, and the Politics of Identity. And I think he had a yeah, chapter on there it. Is. There it is. There it is there, yeah. And um, Elizabeth yeah, Selwyn. Selwyn. My cat is bothering me. Go away. Stop getting close. He's going to turn my computer off. Go away. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. just... I wisely have left our cat in another okay. building. Well, I should, was not she... prudent enough. I'm about yeah. to go put him in another room. Hold on a sec. I'm going to go put him in another room. Yeah, right. Sorry about that. He's been butting his yeah, head no, up against right. my leg for the last hour and a <laughs> half. Well, cats cats either think you are talking to them or you yeah. should be. That's true. There's only there's Very only two true. alternatives. Um, no, but she says this was in 1998 that she's like a, a sort of an occultist herself, but from, not from the right. And she said the effective long-term membership of the Order of Nine Angles remains at one. Anton Long, his aliases include Stephen Brown, David Myatt and Algar Langton and she says it first appeared in Leeds in 1975 so that's uh, that look at his chronology, that would probably fit a bit more but the whole, the whole point is you can't believe anything he said <laughs> right, because then I yeah. think he supposedly renounced his involvement in all this stuff by you know 2011 or yeah 2011 like he said he started this new and then he's developing a new philosophy the new right it's called pathos mathos from his research into old ancient greek i guess he's translated yeah. a bunch of stuff by aeschylus and some other greek yeah you know in the original so he's yeah. obviously a very scholar he uh, yeah he, i read stuff yeah but he like counter just he like has this view of like the sinister and the numinous. So like you're supposed to be sinister and, you know, kind of uh, externally virtuous. So you kind of, it's very, it's kind of like a strange set of doctrines. Cause in a way I've, I have a slight problem with the word sinister because it's the Latin for left uh, being left-handed myself. I'm aware of the historic prejudice against left-handed people you know right they used to in some cultures it was you were considered like a witch or they would actually yeah. retrain you to be right-handed i think in russian oh, they tried, russian yeah they tried with me as a child and i at age eight i said to the teacher this is wrong i'm not doing it that's good well they also that's how they like distinguish it actually goes back to hinduism i think i can't remember which god it was but the right hand path is the path of righteousness and the left hand mm. path and that's kind of been absorbed or adopted by occult groups as 
you know, their research is the left-hand yeah. path research. So. Yes, that's but right. It's a bunch of superstition. So anything. So basically, Copeland went to jail. Their bombings happened, and then what? What do you He's, think? Like the status of the right or the far right in Britain is from then to this time? I mean, I haven't oh, heard right. that much. Uh, very fragmented. So I mean, electorally, uh, and in terms of membership numbers, uh, very poor. So you know, there is a staggering group still calling itself the National Front that has a yearly kind of census of members where they have a march on Remembrance Day, remembering the end of World War One, which is a bit of an irony, as many of their supporters would have supported the other side, but still. Um, and th- their last Remembrance Day parade was one of the lowest attendances ever. There's the British National Party, which is still existing, but uh, not doing anything, not not doing much. But that's organisationally. But in terms of um, putting out things on kind of YouTube and YouTube channels and so on, uh, they're doing uh, they're doing quite well. Yeah, and so and maybe you see one of the things that undermined the far right, although you didn't have to be far right to support it. I mean, I agreed with it, for example, but the debate around Britain leaving the EU, um, given that for a long time, the far right had mostly, apart from supporters of Oswald Mosley, who had a different view, had generally been against Britain being in the European Union. The fact that we have a government of the right that has said that they will take us out has stolen a lot of their thunder, uh, really. And, of course, there's there's not much of a political debate about immigration which tends to favour the far right. So they're in the organisation doldrums, but you couldn't... You can never totally... uh, You can never totally write them off, you know. Like, who would have said before the Russian Revolution that the communists would have ever got anywhere? Nobody. Who would have said before the Berlin Wall fell that the Soviet Empire would collapse? Nobody. Francis Fukuyama said it was the end of history. Oh, really? Uh, You know, so you can never totally uh, uh, write these these groups off at all. But wasn't, uh, wasn't Nigel Farage kind of the head of the UKIP movement? Didn't he come out or have some association? Yeah, he was. He was. He kind of. So he became uh, more mainstream. He stayed out of like that and got. Yeah, and then more... he set up his. Then he set up his own party, which did very well at a European election, and then bombed at the other elections. So, oh, you know. So I know he was uh, friendly with uh, Bannon and company, and yes. uh, yeah, and Trump, so on. All those yeah. guys. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, the right. They. They have. They definitely. I mean. They put the populist label on their names, but, you know, they're definitely somewhere in the right. Yeah, but what you have got now is you've got a kind of, uh, I think we're in kind of ideological flux where you have, on the one hand, you have this movement of political correctness, if you like, which is like toppling statues and, and all these kind of things and engaging in cancel culture and then on the other hand you have 
people who are interested in the politics of identity, which is one of the reasons why people voted in such numbers for the Conservatives. So I think, you know, it could be a reconfiguration of politics. I think things are in flux. There was quite an interesting book written about the referendum on, on the EU. And it, this author divided the population between nowhere between anywheres and somewheres and somewheres are people who had a sense of place and history and tradition and anywheres the type of people who tended to support Britain staying in the EU didn't really care where they are or where they live or what nationality they are there is that kind of uh, overlapping political division and I certainly think it's true that the current conservative government who are uh, cocking things up by the minute, as we say, they were elected because people thought that they would be effective and they would help out the north of England and traditional Labour areas. And uh, I don't think they're going to. And so there will be a backlash against them, uh, whether it will benefit the left or the right. But I certainly think they will be in some trouble when it comes to an election. Well, I definitely agree with you. Things are in flux. We just four years ago elected a guy who was a, a television show uh, person. Get out of here. Yeah. Um, so what, I mean, as far as Copeland, so Copeland's in jail forever. What, what does there well, anything- he, He's in now in a psychiatric uh, hospital. Oh, I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what do you do? You, is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap this up? Is there anything that I missed? Any word contact information, anything like that? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, um, we published a few articles on Copeland uh, on our website, which is www.borderland.co.uk. Uh, but we believe in uh, the hard copy as well as the internet. Because one thing that we've found, and you'd say the same about far-right groups, about all kinds of groups, is with a flick of a switch, an internet site can disappear. And I know there is a brilliant device called the Wayback Machine, but uh, things can be made to disappear from the Wayback Machine as well. And so we believe in hard copy magazine as well. And many of the, the original research on Copeland... Uh, when we first looked at it from issue number three and some of the others is available in hard copy magazine, which you can get from that address. And I'll give my email. I'm probably better off giving the magazine email about so my uh, friend Heidi can uh, finesse and filter responses. Uh, she uh, runs the email address, which is NFB magazine at yahoo.co.uk all lowercase NFB magazine at yahoo.co.uk but she's very nice and she will respond to people and if it's something she thinks that um, I should look at she will send it to me awesome and that's the the website is notes from the borderland the UK's premier parapolitical magazine and I quoted from uh, one magazine that can be found there. That was the title. Issue, uh, issue, issue three, three, yeah. And my five. Well, we, 
we followed it up with further evidence as we got uh, there. So people want to send us ideas, stories and so on. We're actually working at the moment. I'm doing a number of projects simultaneously, which is always difficult. But one thing I'm working at that involves the far right is we, we've only vaguely mentioned uh, national uh, action, a sort of neo-Nazi group where most of the, they've been officially prescribed, most of the leadership elements of them are in jail, but there's aspects of those trials which to me strike of agent provocateur activity and we will be publishing details of that in can the next define, issue. Can you define what a prescription is or pres- what it is? Well, a prescription, a prescription is... Uh, when the uh, British state, I was going to say the government, but it's the state, when the British state says anybody who is a member of this organisation after a certain date, usually, you know, they give a couple of weeks notice, uh, that is illegal. And if we have proof that you have continued membership beyond that date, then you are potentially liable to uh, imprisonment and prosecution. And a lot of the prosecutions of members of the far right in recent times not uh, have been just simply for people who've been members and one of the things that interests me is that somebody who was involved who was an agent for hope not hate searchlight successor uh, called robbie mullen he i think was involved in giving the then leadership of the organization advice and encouragement and suggestions about how they should continue underground which seems to me to go way beyond that of somebody who's infiltrating an organization and towards somebody who is helping to build it and encouraging them into uh, illegality so that's the type of thing that i'm going to be uh, covering and you also, you debated David Sheeler, didn't you? Do you have any comment on that? Like, he was somewhat of a <laughs> internet semi-celebrity Sensation. for a while. I don't know what happened. Yeah, I don't know what happened to him. Yeah. But. Well, he changed his gender, but I think he's changed back now. Okay. He was called Dolores briefly. Um, I think, well, there's two, actually. There was there was him and his partner, Annie, Annie Machen, or Machon, as you Mashon. would probably say, Um both agents of MI5, they, when they left it, they tried to give the impression that they were whistleblowing. whistleblowing but a lot right. of the, a lot of the stuff that they were whistleblowing on, was stuff that MI6 actually had done, or old hat, or stuff that wasn't quite true. And what Annie Mason didn't say, is that after she left MI5. For about six months, she was interviewing top MI5 people as part of a research project for a management company she was working for. Well, that doesn't really sound like you're much of a whistleblower, really. Um, But I debated with him. And unfortunately for him, really, in retrospect, uh, one of the things I asked him about, this was back in 2005, and we did do a DVD of it, which we still sell. Uh, And one of the one of the things was uh, he said that uh, Islamist terrorism, I don't like the word terrorism, but Islamist murderous activity now 
wasn't really significant, didn't really matter. It was all under control. And I think the very next day after we had that debate and he'd claimed that, uh, a bomb went off in London, (laughs) killing a load of people in July 2005. So he wasn't quite up to the mark. But at least he had the guts to debate with me. Annie Mashon, who I regard as a far more serious and sinister, if you like, character than him, she embedded herself in various uh, European research groups. And uh, I think she's still still around. Yeah, I haven't seen them recently, but they were definitely all over. I think they were supposedly whistleblowing about the death of Princess Diana or that he... Oh, uh, well, yeah, they, yes, that's yeah, right. right. I mean, there was a possible technique which was discussed by MI6, but that was more Richard Tomlinson about how they might have killed Slobodan Milosevic, the Serb leader, by shining lights at him from a car in a tunnel. But, you know, my view about Diana is uh, a bit like the Charlie Sargent verdict, not proven. I know they were interested in Diana. I've seen various ways they could have killed her, I'm not so sure. And that's one of the things I would say about Notes on the Borderland is we uh, we get shot at by all sides because we don't take official versions of events at face value. We sort of look to see whether they add up. But equally, we don't fall into the trap of thinking because something is said by an official spokesperson, it must be a lie. And we divide it into official conspiracy theorists and unofficial conspiracy theorists. And of course, as a result, we uh, we annoy both. Like in, in the case of the 2005 July bombings, um, there was a group called the 7-7 campaign who argued that the people who died in the, carrying out the bombings Either it wasn't them or they were patsies or they weren't there. And we we had a debate with them. And if you go onto our website, you should see a link to their article having a go at us, which we printed in the magazine uncensored. And then I responded to them and they haven't responded back. You know, what was your your conclusion about that? Were the four guys patsies or were they? uh, No, I think I think I think they were. I think they were involved. It's a bit like, I know we've mentioned it before, about 9-11. You might think, from our general orientation, we'd believe that 9-11 was an inside job. Whereas, <laughs> I would, you know, if I was choosing who I would um, want to have appeared to have carried out 9-11, if it was an inside job, it wouldn't be a load of people with Saudi passports. It'd be Libyans, it'd be Pakistanis, it'd be somebody from Bradford. It would be, I, my, my view is I think 9-11 was an outside job. But there you go. I know, I know I'm in a minority on that, but we don't mind being in a minority. And the great thing is, if somebody comes along, um, we're not really going to cover 9-11. I think we've put that one to bed. But if somebody comes along and reads stuff in the magazine and they think, hmm, I don't quite believe that. If you can give us evidence to say that we should change our mind, then we're happy to. You know. Well, I mean, I think that your the article that I wrote about Copeland, I think, exemplifies your kind of standards and values because you really wrote a detailed article 
and looked at all the facts and did a lot of questions, asking a lot of questions. Yeah. Yes. But you're yeah. admitting it too. So that, uh, I think that was very worthwhile. It's definitely an excellent article. Highly recommend people get uh, volume three and read that about Copeland and learn more about these characters, Myatt and, some of that pernicious doctrines of the far right doctrines and the ONA super dangerous because somebody else yeah. is going to pick them up and take them seriously. So is there anything else you'd like to add Larry before we wrap this up? Uh, yeah, I could make some general comment American politics, but maybe not. <laughs> okay. Well, it's, it's a kind of a, a dangerous time to say that before an election. So who knows? Who yeah, knows the only thing I would guy. say is uh, you can imagine I'm probably not a natural Trump supporter, I'm not a Trump supporter at all. But the great disappointment to me is that Barack Obama, who I like on a personal level, had eight years and he changed nothing. And that is very sad. Very sad. He told he had some good rhetoric though, so gotta gotta admire yeah. that. Anyway, oh, so yeah, like Larry, yeah. yeah, Larry O'Hara from borderland.co.uk. People check out his research, it's great material. I'm just really glad that you agreed to this interview and I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. And it's one of the, one of the minor thing I might say is in the course of my research, I've made some very powerful enemies. And one of the most powerful enemies I've made is a guy who's very big in the international publishing world. I won't give his name now, but he has been able to make sure that my PhD on the far right has never been published and he's actually taunted me in print to say oh this area hasn't been covered very well and then to mention my phd but he published all kinds of crap but he, he's had the influence to stop it getting published so if anybody out there who's a, a, a mainstream publisher who wants uh, a good book on a, on a, a very important period in in the uk far right uh then I'll be happy to hear from right. you. And that your email again, let's see if I can find this again. It's yeah. nfbmagazine at yahoo.co.uk. Yeah, that's awesome. it. Larry O'Hara, thank you so much. Have a nice day. You as well.